much for inviting me. Uh, pleasure to be speaking at the private conversation. Um, so over the last uh, few years I've had children, as you can notice, um, and uh, I've become interested in women's health. Um, so I've been working, uh, publishing on uh, contraceptive use, uh, contraceptive discontinuation, uh, but also menopause. But today I want to talk about periods and menstruation, and hopefully we're all going to try and think that we have a female body. Um, so what I'm, I'm, what I'm interested in, what I would like you to get away from this talk is, um, what can we gain by using uh, an evolutionary perspective um, when, when we look at women's health? What does it add, really? Um, and just to make sure you don't get your hopes too high, uh, this talk is about questions, uh, much more than it is about answers. So I hope that's okay. So um, that's the outline. Um, I'll give you um, a short introduction about the menstrual cycle, but basically I'm gonna tell you about two papers I've published uh, last year. Been a busy year with the baby. Uh, one uh, is in uh, Evolution Medicine and Public Health, and uh, so it's a research paper. The other one is a review paper in uh, trends in ecology and evolution. And um, while working through those uh, papers, I've been collaborating with Clue. I don't know if you know about Clue. Um, it's the name of an app. It's, uh, it's an app that allows you to uh, track your periods. Or if you're a man, track the, know about your partner's periods because you can connect the, the two apps. It's a startup, basically. Um, and a lot of my thinking and research has been really um, in, in collaboration with them. So, yeah, just to tell you about um, the, the app, so you can collect uh, data for when your um, bleeding starts, uh, when it stops, but also other data such as uh, sexual relationship or how much you've slept or um, your mood, uh, how you feel and so forth. So the first, let's, uh, what are we talking about? The menstrual cycle. I'm sure you've seen this sort of uh, picture before. So I'm gonna go through it with you quickly. So as you can see, it's an idealized menstrual cycle with 28 days. So about 30% of women don't comply to that. But that's the graph we have of them. And um, if you're not, uh, Imagine you have a female body. If you're not pregnant, if you're not breastfeeding, if you're not using hormonal contraceptives, um, you're going to experience menstrual cycles. And those cycles happen uh, in the ovaries and in the uterus. And those are regulated by hormones. I'm sure you know that, but how does that work? Um, so the first day of the cycle is the uh, first day of the period, in case you don't know. Um, and then you have this hormone produced by the pituitary gland at the base of the brain, the follicle-stimulating hormone, so what it does is stimulate follicles uh, at the top. It stimulates it and, um, with, with the egg that um, mature, and then um, this follicle start producing estrogen. Estrogen in red uh, starts to rise, um, and that helps produce uh, uh, another hormone by the brain, uh, the, the um, uh, luteinizing hormone. And those two hormones speak, that means that the egg is going to mature, uh, go through a first meiosis, uh, and then a rest, I think, in metaphase. Uh, and you're gonna have a rupture of the ovaries uh, so that to ex um, expose the, the egg. Now that's important because there is an inflammatory event there, 
uh, and that means that uh, the more you cycle, the more you ovulate, uh, the more um, damage, in a way, uh, you, you apply to your ovaries. So it's followed by an inflammatory reaction that repair um, the, the, the rupture. Okay, and after that, uh, you have uh, the, the, the follicle, what remains of it, without the egg. Start producing progesterone, they start rising. Uh, this is um, where you might have the window of implantation, and then progesterone drops massively, and that starts menstruation. So menstruation is a massive inflammatory event that's going to be um, important as well. So in the uterus, what happens is, okay, you've got your period, you lose the inner lining of the uh, uterus, that's called the endometrium, and then with estrogen, it starts to repair and thicken the endometrium, and then under progesterone, it differentiates, so that to provide basically food, nutrients, but also human cells to where the baby is gonna implant. Okay, that's the physiology for you. So that's it, we understand the menstrual cycle. Now I have another question for you. Um, it doesn't tell us why female do menstruate, in human in particular. Or is it only in humans or is it in other species? So some of you may have a dog, female dog. Do they bleed? Yes. Is it menstruation? No, because uh, it's bleeding from the vagina. Uh, it's actually before uh, they're going to be pregnant rather than after there hasn't been a pregnancy. Uh, one for us is from the uterus. So um, another question is, do other mammals menstruate? As it's relevant to the primate conversation. So um, do you think it's rare? Do you think it's frequent? It is rare. Um, so here you can see, uh, so it's rare in mammals. It concerns some primates, not all. We have gibbon, macaques. Uh, chimps. But then we also have a few species of uh, rodent, the elephant shrew, and a few species of bats, four species of bats. Not all species, right? It's just a few species. And I can show you a biology in here. It's not from me, it's from this paper. And so you can see in pink uh, the lineages where uh, menstruation, um, so that's defined as menstruating from the uh, uterus in the absence of a pregnancy. Uh, in primates, in some uh, uh, bats, and some elephant shrew. So why why is it rare? And it seems to be some convergent evolution. Okay. So then the question is, well, um, why why is that? Why is that? So one of the first hypotheses was to do with uh, a signal of fertility. Yeah, what is that? So the signal of fertility uh, hypothesis was uh, rejected on the ground that. Uh, as you know, during primates, uh, some primates have sexual swellings, and that's a signal in itself. So we don't need menstruation as well. Uh, then we had uh, the sperm-borne pathogen removal. You know this one, maybe. Uh, it's in 1993. So uh, Marshi Prophet decided that actually uh, menstruation um, wasn't something impure from the woman or to get rid of impurity from the female body, but actually it was to do with impurity from the male uh, sperm in that context. So that was uh, very much a feminist argument. 
But there's a problem uh, with this hypothesis as well. So you would predict that um, you have uh, more uh, menstruation in species that are promiscuous or species which are really uh, exposed to infection, and that's not the case. Blood volume is not related to infection. And then it's not clear why uh, in species that are exposed to infection, menstruation um, hasn't evolved uh, more generally. So those were uh, adaptive hypotheses, and little by little, um, the, the conversation has been around um, a byproduct hypothesis. Uh, this one was by uh, Beverly Strassman is about energy conservation. So she suggests that it's, it saves energy to get rid of the uh, endometrium when it's differentiated compared to keep it in this permanent state of differentiation. But there are problems as well, one of them being that then you can't be pregnant again because um, <coughs> Ovulation happens after, uh, before the differentiation. There's been a number of hypotheses. I'm not going to run through all of them. Um, uh, so um, the one we uh, think is happening now uh, is that menstruation has evolved as a byproduct of a choosy uterus. Now, what does that mean? <coughs> that means that in species that menstruate, the signal for the endometrium to prepare is controlled by the mother. While in species that do not menstruate, the signal to prepare is controlled by the embryo. That means that in humans and other species that menstruate, we prepare all the time, no matter what, and that is to menstruation when there hasn't been a baby. While in species that do not menstruate, um, it's only in the case that there's been implantation that there is differentiation. If we go back here, um, I want you to look at this particular part of the graph. This represents, let's call it the implantation reaction. It has a, a more difficult name, which is called the decidual cell reaction, but I'm sure you don't want to hear that. So think about the implantation reaction. We often told, yeah, there is a, a dampening of the immune system in the second phase, and, and, and that's it. It's a bit more complicated than that. At the beginning, you have an inflammatory process that would select uh, between uh, good embryos and abnormal, genetically abnormal embryos. Once that's done, then you have an anti-inflammatory process that would allow for implantation and avoid rejection. Now, those women who are very good at the inflammatory process here, at the beginning of the implantation reaction, never get pregnant. Those women who are um, not very good at that, at the selective process, very good at this one, they get pregnant a lot, but they also get um, abortion a lot. So it's correlated. Women who get pregnant very easily might also be more likely to uh, experience spontaneous abortion or abortion early uh, in pregnancy, right? Because it hasn't been, because embryos that are genetically abnormal are not selected from the start, so then they recognize slightly later. So this is based on experimental uh, evidence. So, um, what I want you to take from this uh, is that we often think of the menstrual cycle as a cycle of hormones and women with their raging hormones and all the rest of it. But why don't we think about it as a cycle of immunity? Clearly, there is information around uh, ovulation. Menstruation is a massive inflammatory event. In the second phase of the cycle, you have inflammation and uh, anti-inflammation. So there's a lot going on uh, in terms of immunity. And that's only by asking why do women menstruate that we can think in those terms. If we think that menstruation is basically the third phase of this implantation reaction when there hasn't been any implantation. 
right? That's the byproduct of this stuff that's happening here. Okay, so now I'm going to uh, enforce this view uh, of the menstrual cycle, the cycle of immunity, to explore uh, diversity in reproductive health, I'm going to talk about PMS, and non-reproductive health. So the first paper, okay, it's about uh, so-called uh, premenstrual syndrome, so um, what is that? Uh, it's a syndrome that's experienced by 80% of women. So that tells you, uh, yeah, 80% of women, it's like they have a, you know, it's like you would say there is a, oh, they've got the annoying syndrome, you know, like everyone gets annoyed, it's, it's annoying at some, at some point. So PMS stands for premenstrual syndrome, it's a condition experienced by women before the menses and characterized by over 200 symptoms, has been um, not only in the so-called West, but also uh, in China. Uh, that includes anxiety, depression, pelvic pain, headache. So yeah, 80%. In some cases, it's very bad, uh, and that's categorized as uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and I'm not talking about this one. So it's a syndrome, disease, experienced by all women, more or less. So we treat it by uh, cognitive therapy and antidepressants, and some contraceptive work, but not all of them. And it's not very clear that there's a link with progesterone level, you have more, more low or high progesterone. It, it's not a. They say it may be because of changing your hormone levels, but it's quite unclear. And from the, that's from the NHS. It's not fully understood why women experience PMS. So that's typical, in a way, uh, of a uh, proximate medical approach. We don't really know why it's there, but we treat it and uh, with some success. Uh, there's also um, vitamin B6 uh, that works a bit better than placebo, but we don't really know why. So as you know, evolutionary uh, people, we want to know why. Um, so what are the hypotheses out there? Um, Okay, we, 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 we are in the anthropology department and we're social anthropologists, so if you're interested in menstruation, I recommend this book, uh, Blood Magic. And there's a, there's a chapter in it on PMS, and uh, basically the, the um, argument is that PMS is not a disease, a biological disease, it's a social disease, uh, whereby uh, society doesn't allow you uh, for cyclicity in uh, behaviour. Society expects you to be efficient all the time, like you know, it's the uh, your machine, like it's, it's in, in the industrial era. Uh, but because you can't um, do well at some particular days, then you experience negative uh, symptoms. I'm not going to talk about this, but that's an interesting one. You can talk to Gabriela if you're interested about this one. Uh, and then uh, biological anthropology hypothesis. So this first one uh, says that PMS is a byproduct of the high you get around ovulation. A lot of the study uh, on menstrual cycling is around ovulation, whether you want to have a different partner around ovulation and what you do around ovulation. And, and you might be excited around the relation and after that you don't feel so good. But I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not so sure about this one because why just before the period and not the whole cycle outside the relation? It's not very clear. This one is the one I'm going to uh, roll with, is the idea that PMS is a byproduct of cyclical immunity. Um, so, I don't know if you know, uh, this man is called Paul Ewald, and I, uh, that's his idea, basically. 
and uh, I've met him at a conference in evolutionary medicine uh, uh, two years ago, three years ago. Uh, and him and his uh, postdoc, they told me about their recent paper uh, investigating this question that PMS might be, uh, might be what, so exactly what they're saying is PMS might be worse if you have an infection. In a way you expect to feel less well before your period because there is an inflammatory reaction that is about to start. But the question is why one might have variation in how bad you might feel at that particular point. Uh, if there is information, where does it come from in a way? Um, so that's his idea. So we go back to the menstrual cycle like this. Um, <coughs> think about progesterone. Progesterone is mainly anti-inflammatory. So, so here, uh, your, your cell-mediated immunity in particular might be down-regulated. Imagine you've got chlamydia. Okay, yeah, imagine you've got chlamydia here. Most people don't know they've got chlamydia when they have it. Uh, during the second phase of the menstrual cycle, because uh, the immune response is downregulated, the, pop the population might increase. Therefore, when the immune system sort of wake up, uh, there's a lot to deal with, and potentially a, a higher um, inflammatory, a stronger inflammatory response. And we know uh, at the proximate level that inflammation and depression um, are linked uh, in, in complex ways. So I just thought that was quite interesting and I wanted to test this. Um, yeah, so there's been two studies looking at this. So their study, um, so their study is based on medical record of 500 women. Uh, they, link, they looked at the link between infection and depression. Uh, there was about 120 <coughs> that were diagnosed with an infection and they found a positive result between chlamydia and depression and pain. Um, but it's only the presence of symptoms that was recorded, not the timing. Um, and the premenstrual phase is conflated with the menstrual phase itself. So, it's room for improvement. And then there's this one study that is a bit funny because um, so it's based um, on patients that had an infection and that underwent treatment for the infection. And so they rated their PMS before and after and they found a, a relationship, but there's no control. And we don't know if it's just because someone's looked after them that they feel better. So no control for this one. So I wanted to investigate this question. Um, and at about the same time, I discovered Clue in a magazine in an airplane. Um, and I uh, received an email from the university saying um, that they would give us money to partner with the industry. So uh, I put the two together, I made Clue. Uh, and they were um, happy about it, so we, um, we paired up to try and test this hypothesis. So what's, what I'm, the, the, the question really I'm looking at is, do STI, sexually transmitted infection, exacerbate PMS? Now you might wonder why is it sexually transmitted infection and not all infection? Uh, I think that could work for all infection, but the sexually transmitted infection, A, a lot of them uh, are have, are asymptomatic and there are evolutionary reasons for that, for why they might be less virulent than other infections, I can talk about it later. Um, and also it has a direct impact on fertility, obviously, uh, leads to uh, infertility. So with clear, I had two very simple questions. Is it the case that if you've got an infection, you've got more PMS symptoms? 
And is it the case that if you get treatment for an infection, uh, PMS symptoms disappear? So it's pretty simple. Um, and to do that, uh, I um, used CLEAR to send out a survey. So uh, there was a questionnaire on uh, uh, whether or not, uh, on infection and, 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 uh, and tests. So I asked people, have you ever been tested for an infection? Yes, no. Uh, if yes, what was it? And were you treated for it? And then a whole bunch of other questions. And then I paired this survey with cycled data from the app at the particular point in time. Right, because I had cycled data for the last five years, say. And then I ask someone, have you ever been tested for an infection? Yes, when was it? Uh, January 2017. Uh, and what was the result? And then I used, for this person, then I used their cycled data just before diagnosis and just after treatment. Assuming that the cycle that was just, just before diagnosis, they would be more likely to have an infection at that point, because they were diagnosed with it just after. Um, that's what I've done. Then you might be wondering which sort of PMS symptom we're looking at, so the app doesn't have too, too many. Um, so I, I, I took the one that, everything that was there basically, so cramps, headache, Tender breast, sensitive emotion, happy and um, sad. <coughs> now you might be thinking, mm, but with this app you don't enter data every day. And that's true, you enter data mainly when you have your periods. So we considered that we had, um, if, if no data were entered that day, we counted it as missing data. If, if something was entered, say I slept three hours, but then headache wasn't entered, then we entered headache as zero, right? Doesn't experience it. Okay? Um, so, in a, so I decided I would run the study for uh, two months. And uh, in two months, I had 36,000 answers. So obviously, I was quite happy with this to begin with, because it's not. In my previous work, I've never had 36,000 answers in the months. Um, uh, out of those 10,000 were tested, uh, and um, a bit less than 100 were tested positive. However, uh, <clears throat> however, uh, I feel it's yeah okay no uh, a bit uh, look at the data. So 82 countries, but mainly the US, the UK, Canada, and Australia. Infection, the main was was uh, human papillomavirus, chlamydia, and herpes. Um, 25 years, th those were the raw data, right? Median cycle length, I had people entering 200, so clearly something was happening there. Um, and median period length, five days. <coughs> okay. Uh, BMI, I didn't use that in, in here. Now, the problem is when we uh, uh, sort of clean the data in the sense that we had, for each individual, we had both cycles, we had, uh, it was clear the data were not entered twice, I mean, we've tried and clean it as much as we could. Um, we ended up with 865 final people, uh, of which only 600 were off contraceptives, and that's what I was interested in, because you don't predict the same thing for people on, on, on hormonal contraception. And in the end, the, the critical group was uh, 40 people had an infection, were tested positive, I had all the data, and they were off contraception. So the sample size reduced tremendously. So it's a pilot study. Uh, that's the way I think about it. So let's look at the first question. Does infection lead to PMS symptom? Um, the first thing to check first is that those symptoms I've used are really 
premenstrual symptoms, like they're more likely to be entered before the period than at any other point in the cycle. Uh, and that was the case. So uh, this is uh, what would be uh, in the rest of the cycle. And this is the odds for you to enter cramp in your app uh, just before the period. So you're most more likely to enter cramp uh, like about four, a bit over four times more likely to enter cramps just before your periods than you are to enter cramps at the, in the rest of the cycle. The same for headache, the same for tender breast, a bit more sad. This is, uh, this is marginal sensitive and you're a bit, bit less happy. So it seems that those symptoms um, are premenstrual uh, one or exacerbated as a, as a, as a baseline. Then what happens when you have an infection? So here I'm going to be comparing people uh, uh, with and without an infection, uh, the, the odds for them to enter uh, those data. And clearly there's the, the, the main effect is headache. So this one says that um, if you have an infection, you are about two, two to three times more likely to enter headache before your period than if you don't have an infection. So it seems that having an infection exacerbates uh, the odds of experiencing headache uh, and to some extent sadness as well. Although as you can see, the huge confidence interval, which is due to the lower sample size. Um, uh, nothing is happening for the, for the rest. Um, but then if I look at what happens in the whole of the cycle, so not only just before the period, but the whole previous cycle, uh, I found that generally people who, have been, who are going to be diagnosed with an infection are uh, more uh, sensitive at that time. Okay, um, so it's all for uh, non-contraceptive, people who don't use contraception, and for those who use contraception, I've got none of those effects, as predicted, uh, because they don't experience cyclical immunity. Um, so on the whole, uh, we've got a bit more headache and sadness prematurely, a bit more sensitive emotion when we have uh, 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 an infection. Uh, something I didn't show, but I'm pretty sure uh, my data show that we've got a longer premenstrual period of cramps. Uh, no change for tender breasts, it's mainly due to uh, estrogen, actually, tender breasts and hormones, uh, hormonal contraceptive. Um, and no change for happy, uh, surprisingly. Uh, no changes if you are a contraceptive user. Now, the second question, in a way, was the most interesting in terms of demonstrating causality, but the problem is. Um, and that was three groups, those who tested negative, most of them, thankfully, um, and those who tested positive, some of them didn't get any treatment. Often uh, it's when they get um, human papillomavirus infection, uh, you don't always get treatment for that because it might clear up by itself, but it takes time. And those one are the SDI are positive, positive treatment. So those guys don't improve, but those ones do improve, which is weird. But the sample size are so small that it's actually quite hard to interpret what's going on. So um, at this stage, I decided that because we had people with different infection, you don't treat chlamydia the way you treat herpes. Uh, chlamydia can actually clear up herpes, not really. Um, so we need to have cycle data uh, you know, in the long run uh, after that, uh, after this particular cycle. So that's where I stopped with this study, uh, obviously a lot of limitation. So we can say that the sample is biased towards uh, rich women from uh, Western educated, uh, industrialized, uh, rich democratic country. 
Instead, if you find something in this sample, that means that in sample of women who uh, do not have uh, similar sort of resources, you might find a stronger <coughs> effect. Um, so there's all sorts of limitations and we aim to address them. Uh, so again, you can ask Gabriella, who is now starting a PhD uh, on the back of this uh, particular study, um, trying to get some biological uh, data in there. Okay, uh, so now I have about 15 minutes to tell you about this review paper. So uh, after this, I was at, at Clue headquarters in Berlin. It's, it's a very cool place, uh, although the jobs are quite precarious in a startup. Um, and I was talking with my collaborator, and, and I don't know, we just thought, but what if, okay, we know immunity is cyclical in the uterus, and okay. But what if systemic immunity, more generally, uh, you know, is cyclical? What, what, if, what if female health, you know, not only reproductive health, but non-reproductive health is cyclical? And there was a reason why I wanted to write this review paper. It's because I was reading in a, a social sciences paper uh, from the Martin School, and they were saying, enough is enough. Let's stop reducing uh, women to their reproductive organs. Uh, we have challenges ahead, chronic disease, cancer, diabetes for women, and we need to worry about that stuff. We don't need to worry about reproductive health nearly as much as we did, and women are more than their reproductive organs. I would tend to agree that uh, women are more than their reproductive organs, but I would suggest, uh, uh, and that's my, uh, my take-home message for you, uh, that from an evolutionary perspective, um, um, the body has evolved in a way that maximizes reproduction given the circumstances. So that hasn't maximized health or only as a way to uh, reproduce. So if we want to understand health more generally, the starting point is reproduction uh, because that's the one target of natural selection and, and uh, health outcome are um, a product of that. So you might be, so it's private conversation, you might be telling me, what do I care? Uh, I'm doing baboons. Uh, I mean, they're mainly pregnant or lactating, so I don't actually observe menstruation very much. And so um, I, I, I want to tell you that the, the, everything I'm going to be talking about uh, is to do really with the trade-off between reproduction and uh, immunity. Uh, and that's something uh, you can look at in baboons. You can look at breastfeeding uh, mummies here, yeah? And the immunity, their ability to heal uh, their wounds is diminished when they breastfeed. So um, that's what I'm interested in, this trade-off between investment in reproductive function and investment in immunity. And the short message is that there just aren't enough studies. Uh, we know about this trade-off in insects, uh, yeah, but not very much in mammals at all. Yeah, because actually we know a lot about testosterone and immunity. We know a lot about males, but surprisingly enough, we don't know so much about females. Yeah, and uh, in animal studies, it's it's also quite biased towards uh, males um, mm -hmm. for all sorts of reason. So you can keep that in mind and see how what I'm going to say then might apply to your uh, model. Okay, uh, so this, in this paper, I'm asking the question, uh, and I wanted to provide a, an honest uh, review of what the evidence is out there. <coughs> First, I looked at the proximate level, physiology, immunity, and second, I looked at the uh, data, published data on non-reproductive health. To make that point that reproductive health and non-reproductive health are linked uh, strongly. 
So, I don't know if you've heard of CRP, it's a common biomarker for uh, systemic inflammation. It's non-specific anthropologists uh, like myself use that a lot in the field. Uh, so it's a big table, it's, um, the, 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 the point of this table is to show that the results are quite mixed. Um, so the prediction would be the first row, where you have high inflammation in dark in the, during the menses, uh, and uh, high inflammation around ovulation, uh, but then uh, less inflammation in the mid-follicular phase, for instance. Uh, yeah, and just before. Uh, the period, but that's what some studies have found, but not all of them. They're usually based. They're usually based on one cycle, which is not enough because there's huge variation between cycles, um, and it's it's a handful of studies really. That's that's it. It's all of the studies there. <coughs> so not clear. Is CRP the right marker or not? Uh, is it mixed because? Um, sometimes they measure ovulation. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they. Have Sometimes they have more, sometimes they use the blood, sometimes they use uh, the urine. Uh, so it's quite unclear uh, what's going on. I think it needs to be much better done. And again, you can ask Gabriela about this one. And we're going to try to do that better. Uh, because sometimes they sample one phase, sometimes another one. All the different phases are defined differently. So it's actually very hard to compare. It might just be that this is not the right uh, marker. It might just be that actually what we need uh, is a marker of a bit more specific, something like cell-mediated immunity. Um, and so I don't know if you've heard of TH1, TH2. Um, so it's that lymphocyte T, but what you need to know is that if you've got a virus or an infection, uh, you're going to deploy this. Uh, if you've got Maybe go in there, come on. If you've got um, a next one, cellular pathogen, like a baby, uh, you might be uh, de developing this, which is more anti-inflammatory. And it is inversely correlated, um, generally. So this, is, this study is the one single most cited study in all papers arguing that actually the second phase of the menstrual cycle is anti-inflammatory. And uh, this is what the paper shows. Uh, that's uh, follicular phase, literal phase, so no difference of TH1 between follicular and literal. But for the TH2, there's much more production of anti-inflammatory marker in the second phase compared to the first phase, and to some extent this one as well. But here's the, the downer, uh, it's only based on 13 women, and as the study really super cited, so um, I, I congratulated myself on going to look at this particular original study because the uh, upshot of this is that we need to redo this. Um, I mean, this is just one study on 13 women, it's, it's, not, it's not good enough. Um, so my conclusion for this bit is not clear whether um, people want to show that, that's for sure, but it's not clear. Um, yeah, for CRP, uh, it also seems to change whether you've got, had sex or not, so there's a lot of ecological factors to consider when you study this. Now, in a way, more interestingly, perhaps, non-reproductive health. So, the first question was, how does the phase of the menstrual cycle influence disease um, susceptibility and severity? First thing is, during the period, more likely to have a heart attack. Um, more likely to uh, have um, epilepsy. When you're an epileptic person, the crisis, you're more likely to have them at that point. 
So if you go to the doctor and you get a blood sampled uh, to assess your risk of heart disease, don't get it sampled during your period because it's going to overestimate your risk of disease. Okay, then um, um, the, 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 what happened here in the secretory phase is quite interesting. Uh, people seem to think that that increases your risk to infection. High progesterone level, anti-inflammatory, increases the risk of infection. And um, there's a number of uh, pieces of evidence. For, for instance, if you want to infect a rodent because you conduct whatever experiment, you inject the rodent with progesterone that facilitates infection. Now, given this, what can we think about um, women who are given a massive shot of progesterone as contraceptive? Some of you might be using Depo-Provera, for instance, uh, an injectable, it's quite a high progesterone level. Uh, women in Sub-Saharan Africa, that's what they use mostly. Uh, and so now the WHO is changing its recommendation for women at risk of getting HIV. Uh, before it was just use the contraception, contraceptive no matter what. And now it's about balancing the, um, the cost of having a baby with the cost of getting infected with HIV, basically. And, and the WHO is now running a trial uh, to investigate whether that's actually the case, that women on Depo-Provera are at an increased risk of infection. So that's for the second phase, but it's not all bad, because if you have an autoimmune disease, obviously, uh, given the state of, uh, the, the, this anti-inflammatory state, uh, if you have an autoimmune disease, the, the severity of it is decreased. Um, there are things we don't know. For instance, what about cancer proliferation? This phase, the first phase, is estrogen dominant. Estrogen also relates to cell division. Given this, what if, what does it do to oncogenic processes? Uh, does it matter uh, when you're going to receive your treatment or what happens? Um, so there's a lot we don't know as well. Uh, for instance, sorry, for instance now, um, uh, there's uh, a lot of thyroid disease out there, like Hashimoto's disease. We know nothing about how the menstrual cycle phase might influence Hashimoto's disease. Um, and we don't have any uh, meta-analysis or review on what happened with diabetes, for instance, um, or other autoimmune disease. So a lot is not known very much. Um, okay, then the second thing I was looking at is the idea of uh, the female striping life history. So imagine you have your period first, that's here, uh, early menarche. Depending on when you, when you have them, you're going to cycle more or less in your lifetime, everything else being equal. Then you cycle, you might use contraceptive or not, you might use, uh, you might be pregnant or not, you might breastfeed or not, uh, you might have menopause at whatever point, you might use hormone replacement therapy. Now all this together is likely to influence uh, your overall inflammatory load over your lifetime. And we know that uh, the inflammatory load is, uh, you know, relates to all sorts of risks of disease, not only reproductive disease, uh, but aging itself, uh, how fast you age, uh, and other cancers. So what we know is that the age up menarche here relates to increased risk of uh, thyroid cancer and um, some type of lung cancer. Uh, doesn't relate to pancreatic and liver cancer. Uh, and that's about the meta-analysis I've been able to find. But in those studies, at best you have age-up menarche. Sometimes you have parity, number of kids, but most of the time it's really not thought about the influence of the cycling life history in determining 
diversity variation in risk of disease. And then when you have an effect of age of anarchy, what you don't know is, is it to do with overall exposure? So you had speared early, so you have had a lot of exposure to cycling hormones, or is it to do with absolute level? People with earlier age of anarchy tend to have higher levels of hormones. This we don't know either. So again, uh, quite a lot that we don't know uh, very much. Not enough targeted study. What I mean by this is something that is a study that looks specifically at that. So, um, just to wrap up, there's some uh, outstanding uh, question. I'm just getting this from my paper. Um, so, from a medical point of view, what is the response to medical intervention uh, as a function of the phase of the menstrual cycle? Vaccination, for instance. Are you going to get a better immune response if you get vaccinated in the first phase rather than the second phase? Is it important? Maybe not. Maybe it is. Uh, just what I talked about, are we talking about what, what is the effect of edge aminarchy? Is it to do with absolute hormonal level? Is it to do with total exposure? So those are more medical questions. We might have more ecological questions. Do females adjust their social behavior as a function of shifting immunity across the cycle? And uh, I know of a few studies looking at disgust and the idea of behavioral immunity and uh, whether that you would express that more or less uh, in different phases of the cycle. The problem of the studies is that they don't really have objective measure uh, of uh, immunity to go together with the behavioral uh, measure. Um, and more generally, we know quite little about uh, the ecological determinants of menstrual cycle uh, traits, menstrual cycle lens, menstrual period lens, uh, um, level of hormones generally. I mean. If this is important for health, we need to understand what are the ecological determinants of diversity in those menstrual cycle parameters. Um, there's some studies that look at sex and the influence it might have on menstrual cyclicity, and it seems that if you don't have sex, uh, there is less cyclicity in immune function, uh, sort of an energy uh, saving um, idea. And uh, I didn't put that, but there also are evolutionary consequences when you think about pathogens and the evolution of virulence. Um, as a function of the ability for the pathogens to transmit, you expect virulence to evolve to, evolve to lower, higher level. So, given cycling immunity, if you could, I mean, if you have a population with women on progesterone, uh, hormonal contraceptive, women normally cycling, uh, women pregnant, I mean, what does it do to the evolution of pathogen virulence? Does it matter? Um, so uh, that's my paper. Uh, I also have a box in the paper that's called Towards a Cyclical Model for Women's Health, where um, that's how I started the paper first, which was sort of half read about um, uh, women are reproducing their reproductive organs, we need to move beyond uh, reproduction, blah, blah, blah. So in this, in, in this box, I'm saying, well, I think. Uh, what we might want to consider that the possibility that reproduction is the very foundation of health generally uh, from an evolutionary perspective and I hope that's the message you're going to take away from it and uh, I, think, I think that's it. Thank you.